1996, Johnny Cash was accompanied by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in a recording of a song. And it's called, I've Been Everywhere. And the song features places that cover more than 112,000 miles of travel from Reno to Dodge City and every imaginable point in between, it seems. And what you might not know is that the song, I've Been Everywhere, was actually not written by Johnny Cash at all. It was written by an Australian man named Jeff Mack in 1959. In 1959, the song was written by Jeff Mack to cover more than 90 locations in Australia. And in the years since 1959, musicians have adopted the title of the song to the different locations of their region. There are versions of this song that are specific to Britain, to Finland, to Germany, and a a lot more. So what happened after the song was written for Australian uh, cities and places in 1959 is a few years later, 1962... His music publisher offered the song to a country musician named Hank Snow. And Snow believed that the song had potential for American markets, if all the places were changed, to locations in North America. And so Jeff Mack took a North American atlas, and he rewrote the song for that market of listeners, and it was made famous by Johnny Cash, especially in 1996. The oldest version of this song is in Numbers 33, I've Been Everywhere where we read about all the travels of Moses and the Israelites. Moses can say, I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Cross the deserts, bare man. I've breathed the mountain air, man. Travel, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. (laughs) One way to describe the content of what we're reading in this chapter is a travel log. And there are a lot of places that are named. We're just going to hear a lot of names tonight, not spend significant time on these 42 places. The outline of chapter 33 of Numbers is in bulk about these places. Some of them are cities, some of them are just regions or a place like the wilderness of Zin, something like that. They are locations. And in verses 1 and 2, what we're told is that Moses was going to record the stages of Israel's journey. In verses 3 to 49, we read the names of 42 places. And in verses 50 to 56, the command to conquer Canaan's inhabitants will be the climax of the chapter tonight. It's a passage we heard right before we began tonight. The passage about the command to conquer these inhabitants, to drive them out, to overcome their idols and images, and to establish the true worship of Yahweh in the land of Canaan that would become the land of Israel. In verses 1 and 2, the recording of the Israelite journey is told to us. These are the stages of the people of Israel. When they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies, under the leadership of Moses and Aaron, Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. What verses 1 and 2 are laying out for us is that Moses recounted in writing all of what we're going to see now preserved in Numbers 33. And that this record was taken stage by stage. I don't know if you've ever done this on family trips where you're trying to keep track so that you can look in hindsight or many years later. Where did we go and where did we stay? Um, I've heard of people doing this, and I read an account uh, earlier this week of a particular minister who, when he was young, his dad 
uh, would take a record of every place they stopped for gas. And so all these years later, they could have memories flooding back because they were prompted by timestamps and by locations. Here's where we went detail by detail. Now, I do not travel that way, (laughs) but but it was a fascinating idea to think when you're able to look back years later, the incredible record of your journeys that are there. I know there are times where I look back thinking, I wish I would have kept better record having traveled here or there or everywhere, man. And then in verse two, when they go stage by stage, what they are doing is starting out from Egypt to their present location in Numbers 33, which is the land of Moab. So here's the framing. The framing is we're taking this trip from bondage in Egypt which was the land of Ramses and the Egypt uh, territory that verse 3 will talk about. And that Egyptian uh, captivity uh, was uh, overcome by the mighty Exodus, right? And then their journey, many years that would follow, 40 years of wilderness wandering included. And it gets to the other side of what frames their journey, and that is the land of Moab where Moses and the Israelites would be in their present day in Numbers 33. So we're taking uh, a journey. Now, um, if you looked at a Bible map, not all of these places are recorded on a Bible map. And that's because some of them are not known with any specificity anymore about where precisely they would be along the way. So there's a lot of uh, educated guessing that goes on with some of these obscure locations. But several of them will ring a bell. Some of them have played an important role in the book of Numbers. Now, uh, I do want to highlight the um, division of these sections. In verses 3 to 49, this looks like a lot of cities. But here's how to get our minds around it. Three big parts on the right side of the board here. From Ramses, meaning the land of Egypt here, to Mount Sinai, Exodus 12 to 19 tells this journey. And in our verses tonight, verses 3 to 15 cover the journey from Exodus 12 to 19. Deliverance from captivity to the arrival at Sinai. And then once we pick up with verse 16 tonight, verses 16 to 36, take us from Mount Sinai, not to their first arrival at Kadesh, but to their return to that region where they had earlier rebelled. And so it's very important that we remember this Kadesh here at the end of verse 36 is going to be the Numbers 20 location. They did rebel at that location much earlier, but they later returned there in the new generation in Numbers 20. So Numbers 10 to 20, they set out from Mount Sinai and eventually arrive at Kadesh in Numbers 20. So Numbers 10 to 20 give us the, uh, um, the big scriptural uh, window that verses 16 to 36 tonight we'll talk about. And then the locations from verses 37 to 49, which completes all of those 42 locations, is from Kadesh to the land of Moab, where they are in Numbers 33. That's their present context. And that covers just a brief section of Numbers from Numbers 20 to 21, where they are arriving in Moab. These cities tonight, in other words, these locations, not just cities, these locations, these places, fit along certain Bible sections. Exodus 12 to 19 takes you from Egypt to Sinai. And then from Numbers 10, really all the way through Numbers 21, the rest of these are plotted along the way. This is, this is the Israelite journey. And so I think uh, dividing it this way is helpful. Uh, one other principle of division. You know, there are 42 places tonight. And uh, Old Testament scholars have thought, well, that's interesting because it's divisible by the number 7. 
And uh, you can group these into six groups of seven locations apiece. And um, I, I try to do the work of this to do all the counting right and just to confirm what others have observed. And it is indeed the case that you can plot out six groups of seven locations. And uh, some have tried to do uh, seven groups of six locations. It still works out to 42 locations. And uh, that's significant uh, for the use of the number seven, it seems, in the Old Testament. Let's look together at the first setting out. In verse 3, they set out from Ramesses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. What we're reading about is, how does Israel's journey begin as a nation? Well, with the Exodus. That's what marks it. That's what's going to start. And in the first month of their year, and on the 15th day, we're thinking about Passover and the journey that follows. And it tells us the name Passover in verse 3, just to link it and fuse it with Exodus. And then in verse 4, this was while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn. Well, there's some Bible that we've got to recall, right? Because the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn. That's being recalled here in verse 4. The firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. When we were in the book of Exodus, long time ago now it seems, um, the book of Exodus has a series of ten plagues. And what I argued at the time um, that I think verses like this confirm is that the judgments and plagues are associated in some way with an Egyptian deity over which the Lord is demonstrating his supremacy and power. And these deities, these gods of Egypt, could do nothing to help the people because they're no gods at all. And therefore, the plagues were very specifically chosen. Gnats and frogs and boils all deal with very particular theological beliefs and practices that the Egyptians had. And here, one way to think about the judgments of Egypt on Egypt is that it was executed on the gods of Egypt so that the Lord God of heaven reigns supreme and there is no rival to stay his hand. In verse 5, the people of Israel set out from Ramesses and encamped at Sukkoth. And they set out from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Etham and turned back to Pi-Hirayoth, which is east of Baal-Zephon, and they camped before Migdal. And they set out from before Hiroth, and they passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. In verse 8, passing through the midst of the sea is the reference to what Exodus 14 would tell us, the Red Sea parts. This is the passing through the midst of the sea. And in Exodus 14, we read about that incredible and life-defining miracle for the Israelites. And then they went a three days journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. What we read about in Exodus 12 is their deliverance. They're crossing through the Red Sea in Exodus 14. But what happens after that is they're not immediately at Sinai. They've got weeks and weeks and weeks of travel. And as they travel, they are traveling through wilderness toward Mount Sinai. So they're not even in Sinai wilderness yet. They're getting there. And after the Red Sea crossing... We find that in Exodus 15, Exodus 16, Exodus 17, there are a series of tests, we could call them. Hardships from the Israelites' perspective. They need food and they need water. and The Lord miraculously provides for these Israelites who are very concerned that maybe God's brought them out to die. 
And then we get a little glimpse in those chapters of what Numbers puts on a much larger scope. We worry about these Israelites who after walking through walls of water might so quickly say to the Lord, have you brought us out here that we perish? In verse 9, they set out from Marah and came to Elim. And at Elim there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. And they camped there. They set out from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. In verse 11, they set out from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. Now the wilderness of Sin is very... uh, Um, funnily translated because we think immediately sin like iniquity, transgression. That's not the impression here. We're trying to uh, bring across into the English what the original language says, but it is rather humorous that the word sin is what we read uh, because certainly in these places there was plenty of evidence for it. Uh, But in verse 11, they camped there. And in 12, it says they set out from the wilderness of sin and camped at Dovka. And in verse 13, they set out from Dovka and encamped at Elush. And they set out from Elush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. In Rephidim, you read this location in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17 is where we find this reference to this location. And so by by having the little phrase, where there was no water, we are able to confirm what Exodus 17 says. In verse 1, in the con- all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink, and therefore the people quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And so even at Rephidim, not many chapters after the Red Sea crossing, we're seeing this spiritual manifestation of the Israelites that is concerning. In verse 15, they set out from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hatava. Now, right before verse 16, we might be able to capture here a, a completed set of journeys. I argue here on the right side of the board that verses 3 to 15 could be considered here the journey from Egypt to Sinai. So when it says they encamped at the wilderness of Sinai, well, that's Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is at Sinai where they will hear the Ten Commandments. This is where Moses will ascend the mountain and bring the rest of the law of God and all of its various um, extensions and applications for the people that Exodus 21 all the way in through the book of Leviticus will describe. Israel's at this wilderness of Sinai for approximately 11 months, but over 50 Bible chapters are devoted to that 11th month stay at Mount Sinai. It's that crucial for the people. They are defined by a covenant relationship established there. So at Mount Sinai, it just says that they camped there. But oh my goodness, it's a huge moment. Exodus 19 through Numbers 10, they're at that location for 11 months. They hear the Ten Commandments. They receive the rest of the law and the covenant that is formed there. They build the tabernacle there. The building of the golden calf also took place there. The judgment and breaking out of wrath in the congregation. That stay in the wilderness of Sinai, we're not given any other phrases there, but we need to recall those kinds of things. Now beginning in verse 16 through verse 36, they move from Sinai all the way to the end of the 40-year wilderness wandering when the new generation goes once again to Kadesh. Earlier a place of rebellion, but later a place where they will return, ready to enter the land soon after. So from verses 16 to 36, 
they make this travel. And the departure from Mount Sinai is recorded in Numbers 10, which is why Numbers 10 to chapter 20 is really the the chapters encompassing all these places. So let's look at them together. They camped there in verse 16 at Kibroth Hatavah. And in verse 17, they set out from there and camped at Hazaroth. In verse 18, they set out from Hazaroth and camped at Rithmah. They set out from Rithmah and camped at Ramon Perez. They set out from Ramon Perez and camped at Libna. And then in verse 21, they camped from Libna to Rissa, and then from Rissa they camped at Kahelatha. And Kahelatha in verse 23 is followed by camping at Mount Shefer, and they set out from Mount Shefer and camped at Haradah. From Haradah they left and camped at Machaloth. In verse 26, from Machaloth they left and camped at Tahath. And Tahath they left and camped at Terah. In verse 28, they set out from Terah and camped at Mithkah. They set out from Mithkah and camped at Hashmonah. And then in verse 30, they left Hashmonah and camped at Mazaroth. Mazaroth has another name. Mazaroth is the location where Aaron will die. Um, this particular location is going to be part of Israel's history. In verse 31, they set out from Mazaroth and camped at Bene Jachon. They set out from Bene Jachon and camped at Hor Hagidgad. And then verse 33, Horhagidgad and camped at Jothbatha. I'm doing my best here, y'all. In verse 34, and they left. Um, somebody should put this to the same tune as I've been everywhere. And just use all these places. Some of you are shaking your head. You wouldn't want to download that track. I don't blame you. Uh, Jothbatha, they camped at Abronah. In verse 35, they went from Abronah and they camped at Ezion Geber. And in verse 36, what caps off this trajectory from Sinai to Kadesh they set out from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin. The wilderness of Zin is where Kadesh is. So Kadesh is located in a wilderness, the wilderness of Zin. And why does the, the wilderness of Zin ring a bell for the reader of Numbers? Well, because in the region of Kadesh, in that wilderness, the earlier generation had rebelled against God. They had been brought up to the edge of the promised land, right? And the spies go in, they scout out the land, and they bring back a majority bad report. And then in Numbers 13 to 14, the Lord condemns those wandering Israelites then for 40 years. And the new generation will arise. In Numbers chapter 20, we see that they arrive as a new generation to Kadesh, and it's going to go better for them than it will for that earlier generation who had rebelled in that location. In verse 37, they set out from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor, on the edge of the land of Edom. In verse 38, Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor. So this is the name of this, uh, this uh, elevated um, spot, right? Mount Hor is where Aaron the priest, in verse 38, goes at the command of the Lord. This took place in Numbers chapter 20. We're told that he died there. In the 40th year after the people of Israel had come from the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now that's quite an elaboration, right? We look through place after place and city after city. You don't get all this elaboration. But when there is an expansion on a list of places like there is here, 
It's just good to recognize that. Rephidim had that little phrase earlier where it was the place lacking water and the Israelites in Exodus 17 had, had uh, expressed their criticism and, um, and frustration at Moses. Here in verses 38 to 39, we get that reminder of the episode with Aaron the high priest. This is the transition period of Israel's history. Israel has died and been reborn in the wilderness, if you will. This is the death and resurrection of Israel. And not only is the nation undergoing that kind of uh, uh, turnover, the high priesthood will also have succession. That means Aaron is going to die, and he dies on Mount Hor, and he dies in Numbers chapter 20, and when he does, he's 123 years old. And that confirms that indeed he's three years older than his younger brother Moses, who's going to die at 120. But it's the last year, the last year of Aaron's life, the last year of Miriam's life, who dies at the beginning of Numbers 20, the last year of Moses' life. Moses will die at the end of Deuteronomy. And so this 40th year is an important reference here in Numbers 33. This completes their wilderness wanderings because it's the last year. And then in verse 40, here's what we see next. In verse 40, in the Canaanite... The king of Arad, who lived in the land, who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan, heard of the people, the, uh, the coming of the people of Israel. So this king of Arad, who hears of the coming of pe- people of Israel, where do we read about him? Numbers twenty-one. Numbers twenty-one. Right after the death of Aaron in Numbers twenty, we're told about the king of Arad, who has heard about the approach of the Israelites. They don't stay at Mount Hor, though Aaron has died. They must move on. So in verse 41, they set out from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmonah. When they left, they have a new high priest. The son of Aaron, Eliezer, is the new high priest. And he's wearing the vestments of his father Aaron when he came down from the mountain. In verse 42, they set out from Zalmanah and camped at Punan. In verse 43, they set out from Punan and camped at Oboth. And they set out in verse 44 from Oboth and camped at Ei-Abarim in the territory of Moab. So now we're drawing near to where we've been in numbers for a while geographically. The location of Moab. So they're coming near to the territory of Moab. And then in verse 45... The specifics in the region work like this. They set out from Iyim and camped at Dibon Gad. They set out from Dibon Gad and camped at Almon Diblathayim. And they camped, they set out in verse 47 from Almon Diblathayim and camped in the mountains of Abarim before Nebo. That word Nebo matters because Nebo is this ridge in the mountainous area where Moses will die in Numbers 34. There, there really is a sense of closure that as a reader, we're beginning to feel with that earlier generation. It has died off. Moses' death is nearing. And they're at the location where Moses in front of Mount Nebo will climb that mountain and die. In verse 48, they set out from the mountains of Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan River at Jericho. When it says by the Jordan at Jericho, we must be clear, Jericho's in the promised land. And if you look on a Bible map, right on the other side of the Jordan River, across from Jericho, is the plains of Moab. So they're still in the plains of Moab. Saying at Jericho is a reference to nearness. It doesn't mean they're actually in Jericho, right? So near Jericho and across the Jordan River from it, here they are. But even that language of saying by the Jordan at Jericho is important for what we know is to come. Jericho. 
Jericho will be the first place where the Lord will give them deliverance in the promised land. It's like the installment of all the conquest that's to come. We read about this in the early chapters of Joshua. The Israelites are going to go and they're going to take Jericho. So here they are. And where are they camped? Well, right across from it for crying out loud. This is huge. They are so near what the events of Joshua will report. It says they camped there in verse 49 by the Jordan from Beth uh, Jeshemoth as far as Abel Shatim in the plains of Moab. And this takes us through Numbers 21. We know several other things had happened. In Numbers 22 to 24, you get the whole Balaam oracles. Okay, Balaam is called by the king of Moab. Balak is king of Moab. And here the Israelites are in this region. And Balak, uh, king of Moab, is like, I really want these Israelites to be cursed. Let me call this guy. And uh, you know they, they uh, call up Balaam. They send the messengers. And Balaam is reluctant at first. He ends up going. And, uh, and yet only blessing comes from his mouth in Numbers 22 to 24. But the Israelites are not scot-free in the land of Moab because uh, some Midianites, prompted by Balaam's advice, it turns out, show up in Numbers 25, and they seduce the Israelites into idolatry and immorality. And judgment will later be had on those Midianites. In Numbers 26, there's a recounting of the people in a new and final census. In Numbers 27... The Israelites will have a leader after Joshua. Moses will be the appointed one. In Numbers 28 and 29, all of these sacrificial and offerings are reiterated for the festal calendar of Israel because they're going to go in and be the people of God. In other words, these latter chapters in Numbers have a drumbeat to them. And the drumbeat is, we're nearing life in the land. Let's cover everything you need to know. So they're, they're readying the people. And as we've looked at all of those cities, we've looked at 42 names of places. We've looked at six groups of seven, or seven groups of six. And having looked at all of those 42 places, we can see, and those, that list of places was a lot longer than it should have been. These Israelites should have believed the Lord in Numbers 13 and 14. These This length of places that we just worked through with all the difficulties of pronunciation, it should never have been this long. It should never have taken them this long. They disbelieved the Lord and they made everything more difficult. Their folly, the the sowing and the reaping of the warning and judgment of God and the discipline of the Lord in their midst, in Numbers 25, their rebellion resulted in 24 thousand Israelites being judged unto death. We see in the book of Numbers, you know, all of these cities, we don't have a story connected to every one of these cities, but the routes and the locations from Ramses or Egypt to Sinai and then from Sinai to Kadesh, well, we've got some stories in Numbers that tell us what those journeys were like, and it is such a mixed experience. These 42 places, these 42 locations This list is longer than it should have been. It was made more difficult and their journey more arduous because of their wickedness and their rebellion against God. God is faithful to the covenant. And He had promised them in Exodus that if they will keep the covenant, they will know His blessing. They should hold to His law, delight in His word. They defied the Lord. They rejected His word. What should they expect? But God keeping His promises and faithfulness to judge. This list of cities that's longer than it should have been reminds us of the many years of wandering that ensued after Numbers chapter 13 and 14. 
This chapter ends not with those 42 cities, but with the foreshadowing of what's to come. If Moses has recounted for us, and as verses 1 and 2 have told us he was going to do, all the stages of Israel, and now they're in the plains of Moab, well then what's next? You see, they're living in the in-between time. Their long journey is behind them. And what's before them is the promised land. That's where they live. They live between that experience. They live between looking at how the Lord has helped them and how they can be thankful at the Lord's provision. You know what those cities also say in those places in verses 16 to 36? They are verses uh, 3 through 49 rather. They also tell us of the faithfulness of God all along the routes. That from Egypt to Sinai and Sinai to Kadesh and Kadesh to Moab, the people have been unfaithful. God has been faithful. A pastor asked a, a church member one time how things were going spiritually. And she says, I'm living somewhere between thank you, Lord, and help me, Jesus. And, uh, and, I, and I think that that's, isn't that so much of the Christian life? Thank you, Lord, help me, Jesus. You know, that's where they find themselves as believers. And I want to suggest to you that in verses 50 to 56, they have the thankfulness to the Lord who has been faithful to them and has seen them through all manner of difficulty and what is before them, what they must trust the Lord for. The instructions are strong. In verses 50 to 56, he commands the conquering of the land of Canaan. In verse 50, he speaks to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And he says in verse 51, you speak to the people of Israel and you tell them this. When you pass over the Jordan, the Jordan River, into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. The actions that they're to take is a dispossessing of these militant forces. And the fortresses and the idol temples and the images and the Asherah poles and the Baal images, all of these things are representing godlessness and idolatry. And the Israelites are too weak. They must subdue and they must exercise the dominion over this location and then divide the land. But if they take possession of the land and decide to indulge in the presence of the idols in their midst, the Lord warns them what's going to happen. In verse 53, he says, you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. The book of Joshua tells us that. He says, for I've given the land to you to possess it. They can trust the Lord's promise. I've given you the land. Now, they're not even in it, but they're being told here, I've given it to you so they can go as if the deed is already done. You shall inherit the land by lot, according to your clans. Now, we all already know a kink in this that we saw last time, didn't we? In Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy. In Numbers 32, in Numbers 32, Gad and Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they're going to have locations outside the promised land where they're going to live. For the Israelites who are committed to the covenant life with God in the land of promise, which I think they all should have been, then, uh, then they're going to have their allotments apportioned by casting of lots. And that's what it means here in verse uh, 54, that you shall... Inherit the land by lot according to your clans. And there's a proportion to this. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance. Now, the largeness of the tribe is already indicated by the extravagant numbers of the military fighters in Numbers 26. We can get a sense already of how large some of these tribes are by the number of fighting men for them. 
And then whenever a lot falls for anyone, oh, well, also to a small tribe, you give a small inheritance. And wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. When the conquest is happening in the book of Joshua, that's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is really narrating the fulfillment of these instructions. The, the parsing out and the filling out of the promised land by the various tribes. There is a warning. Chapter 33 ends with a very sobering words. And oh, if they would take this seriously. In verse 55, he says, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. This is exactly what Joshua tells them. If you go to the book of Joshua, chapter 23, he says, Be careful to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground the Lord has given you. That's from Joshua 23. He's warning them. Not to seek the, to build their life and associations to wrap up their worship with the nations. That's the danger. It's a spiritual danger. So he says in verse 56 here, And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Meaning that when the book of Joshua begins to narrate the conquest of the land, if they didn't follow the instructions of the Lord, we would expect... That the warning of God would then come to pass in various judgments and cycles of their sin and idolatry. And you get to the book of Judges, and you know what you see? There was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Joshua has died, and long before that, Moses has died. And with these major leaders in Israel having died, these Israelites are encumbered with the snares of the idols of the nations. And they intermarry with them, and they worship the gods of the nations And then we see when God says here in verse 56, I will do to you as I thought to do to them. They experienced the chastisement and the discipline of the Lord. For they did not take his warning seriously. Friends, we need to be people who are convinced we are not smarter than the Bible. We are not those who should look at the warnings of Scripture and say, that can apply to everybody but me. I've got this. No, no. Look at the nature of the folly of these people who thought they could continue doing what they want and in the manner of how their strategies would unfold. It would all be fine, but it wasn't. It wasn't. And when the time came for the monarchy of Israel to be set up, you know the kind of king they wanted? Saul! who proved to be a thorn in their sides. They needed someone like David that God would establish. But for them to realize, sometimes getting what I think I really want isn't what's best for me. They wouldn't trust the Lord. They questioned His Word. And they thought they were smarter and wiser than the commands of God. But that's not true for our hearts. We are not wiser than the Scriptures. Joshua said, you need to be careful to love the Lord your God. Why would he caution them with that kind of language? You ever thought about that before? Be careful to love your God. What does that mean? It means to give thought to it. To give care to it. That it's not something that just happens. But it's something we must deliberately pursue. And if these Israelites didn't, then they had the other warning that would come to pass. Throughout Deuteronomy, he says, 
don't forget the Lord when you go into the land. Because you see, if they didn't take care to love the Lord their God, they would forget the Lord their God and they would live out the desires of their own hearts to their own undoing. Truly, these Israelites have been brought very far. Makes me think about John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, was first sung in January of 1773. And one of these stanzas makes me think of these Israelites' history and our own spiritual journey. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That's our hope. Praise God, that hope is not in vain. We hold it sure, for Christ lives, loves His people, and will bring us into the fullness of our inheritance. Let's pray.